Stand with me, if you would, as we today's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter two, verses one through four. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day of worship. We thank you that you've called us into your presence and your spirit is with us now. We thank you that Levi is here with us this morning to deliver your word and pray that your spirit would guide him in doing so mightily and that you would prepare our hearts to receive it and that your spirit would in that way change us and conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Help us as we go forth from this place, having heard your word and walked with your spirit to be salt and light in the world and to reach out to those around us with the good news. Thank you for this time of worship in the name of Christ. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Just on? Okay, excellent. Well, it's a real uh, privilege. It's a pleasure to be back with you all. Uh, it's been a little while since I've been here, and uh, but I'm I'm so uh, thankful uh, to be here. Uh, I'm, it's always a, a privilege and finding a great joy uh, to get to uh, worship with you all, to spend time with you, and to have the privilege of opening up God's word for us this morning. Uh, it is a real honor. And uh, thank you, John, for leading us in the service and for, for reading us uh, from uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2. If you haven't yet already, please turn there with me uh, in your Bibles or on your devices, whatever you have. And we're going to look at uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2. Uh, we're moving now into a new section of the letter. And Paul's big concern uh, as we look here, is uh, about uh, Christian unity. Uh, Psalm 133 uh, opens and says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And Paul is going to appeal to this kind of unity uh, several times throughout his letter. Uh, but it goes without saying, uh, this is a, a wonderful ideal that we have to live in unity. Uh, but it doesn't always happen. And we can look around, uh, not only within the church, but within the, the nation at large. There's so much disunity. There's so much division in our world. A lot of strife, a lot of angst. We, we feel this. We, we feel this every election season. We feel this 
uh, throughout our lives, and it, it also af- affects the church. Uh, we see this in our own uh, PCA. Uh, there's a lot of uh, disunity, uh, especially regarding some of the, the votes that happened at last General Assembly, uh, some of the upcoming votes within our presbyteries, um, and we see disunity even um, locally as well at times with the local congregations and local sessions. And my, my aim this morning is not to address any of those issues uh, directly that are pressing the church, as important as they are and as important as we need to talk about them. But my, my, my aim this morning is to speak to us uh, from this text that addresses the, the ideal Uh, that addresses the goal that we all should be seeking. This text, you see, it it addresses the underlying issues in every case of division and disunity. And so that's where we must go. That's where we must look as well. This this small uh, local church in Philippi, it was going through uh, some of its own sharp uh, disagreement. And so how does the Apostle Paul, how does this loving pastor, how does he respond to this news that his beloved congregation is facing some discord among themselves? How does he seek to restore unity? And so when disagreement arises with others in the church and with ourselves, what is our default response? What must be the foundation of doing life together in our church? Why is it good and why is it pleasant when brothers and sisters in Christ live together in unity? Those are the questions uh, from our text this morning that we're, we're hoping to answer. Uh, so let's, let's look there now. Uh, but first, let's, let's pray uh, again that God's illuminating spirit, that that spirit would do the work in our hearts this morning through this text, through his own word. Uh, let's pray uh, to God now. Heavenly Father, we are so uh, incredibly grateful and thankful uh, for this morning, for this time that we have together, where we can uh, gather as one body, as uh, one church uh, under our one head, our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray now by your spirit that you would work in our hearts, that you would help us to see the value, the, the loveliness, the beauty of, of Christian unity and that we would see and strive for that ideal, looking to you alone as the foundation and as the source of that unity and of our joy. And so we pray that you would do that work in our hearts this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember from last week, uh, Paul has just uh, given us his main proposition of the letter, his, his main thesis statement. He makes that point in chapter 1, verse 27, that they are to live uh, their lives and to let their manner of life uh, be worthy of the gospel. They are to live as becomes followers of Christ. Now, we'll, uh, have the, I have the privilege of, of uh, reading uh, membership vows to Jefferson and Carmen later on after the sermon. One of those vows is uh, that you would uh, live your life as becomes a follower of Christ, as one that has surrendered their entire life to Christ and seeking to follow him in all that he commands. That's exactly what Paul is saying to the Philippians, his, his main proposition. Live as who uh, you uh, are 
uh, have been born to be as who you, you, uh, to whom you belong. You are citizens of Christ's heavenly kingdom. And so, so live that way, act that way. Be who you were born to be. But how? How are they to do that? How are we to do that? That's what Paul addresses here in our passage this morning as he moves now into uh, the instructive uh, portion of his letter, into the imperatives, into here's what you ought to do. And so here is what letting your manner of life uh, um, be worthy of the gospel. Here's what that looks like. And what it looks like is being of one mind. We could say living together in unity, striving after the same goal. These are not just uh, abstract Christian ideals that, that Paul is, is giving to them uh, in a vacuum, but these are very tangible steps for achieving unity among the brothers and sisters who have strong disagreements. Uh, we know from chapter 4 of the letter of Philippians that one of the reasons, one of the big reasons that Paul is writing this letter is because there is disagreement in the church between Eudia and Syntyche. These two members of the church, their disagreement. And so Paul appeals to them to uh, agree in the Lord. Well, how can they do that? That's what Paul writes about here. And so uh, very masterfully, Paul lays out this um, long conditional sentence, an, an if-then clause. Paul says, if these certain things are true, then here's what you must do, and here's how you can do it. So there, there's the if clause. Those are the, the reasons to do it. And then Paul states the, the then clause. That's the goal. And then Paul lays out some practical steps, the means by which they can accomplish that goal. So those are the three things we want to look at today. The reasons and the goal and the means of accomplishing the goal. Those three points. And this will become more clear as we, we go along, and, and I'm, I'm indebted to uh, Pastor Dennis Johnson, the PCA pastor, Westminster professor, for, for really this, this outline, helpful outline of this section, um, because I want to look at it slightly out of order. So I just, I just laid it out very clearly for you, now I'm going to flip it around, okay? But bear with me. I want to look at the goal first. I want to look at what we're, what we're to strive after, what we are to do. And then we'll look at the means of accomplishing that goal. And then finally, we'll conclude where Paul began with the beautiful and awe-inspiring and Trinitarian reasons why we strive for this goal, this goal of Christian unity. And so let's start there, the goal. Paul says, complete my joy by being of one mind. That's the goal, being of one mind so as to complete Paul's joy. Well, why does he say that? That seems somewhat of an odd thing to say. He says, Paul, aren't you the one that's telling us to consider others before ourselves, but here you are saying that we ought to be completing your joy? Seems somewhat hypocritical. But Paul's not being a narcissistic here. He's not being a hypocrite. He's, he's not saying you all need to be selfless, but not me. No, he will go into much detail about the life that he gave up in order to live, uh, to live for Christ. But here, Paul gives them a hint at what a truly reoriented life focused on Christ looks like. 
What constitutes Paul's joy? It's the love and the unity of believers living together. That's what completes Paul's joy. And that really hits me. Like, where does the love and unity of the believers land on your list of things that you're uh, joyful about, seeking, uh, that you long for? It's not one that shows up on mine. If I'm being honest, when I, when I really think about it, it's not the first thing that would come to my mind. And I think that's something that we can struggle with as a church, especially in the American church, this idea of community and the unity that goes along with it that we should be seeking after. But Paul, he really understood the beauty of that unity that we read earlier in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant, how wonderful it is when God's people dwell together in unity. You see, this was the counterintuitive nature of the gospel that Paul preached. We are to uh, follow uh, this, this crucified Christ. Well, that's, that's an oxymoron. The Christ was God's anointed. He was the one to bring, to, uh, bring the kingdom. He was the one to accomplish great things, not to be sacrificed on the cross. We're to follow the, the murdered Messiah. This all seems backwards. And it is backwards. When we follow this Christ, we're told that we have to reorient our lives, that we're to value others above ourselves. And not only that, but when we do that, that's where we find our, our most uh, joy. Our highest joy, our chief uh, happiness in life is to be found in service to God and to others. Yes, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He says, complete my joy, complete it. By being of one mind, literally, Paul says something like, think as one. And this is, it's the only imperative in our passage this morning. That's, that's why it's the goal. It's the, the main point that Paul's uh, pressing toward them. This is the one thing I want you to do is think as one, be of one mind. And Paul says that this thing, being of one mind, that is equal, it equates completing his joy. We can just sit there for maybe a moment longer. Just how good, how pleasant it is when we dwell in unity, when we are of one accord, when we, we all know what that feels like. We also know what, what uh, it doesn't feel that way. But that is where Paul's joy comes from. It, it, his joy cannot be separated from the unity that he desires to see in the Philippians. And how much simpler would life be if we were all perfectly unified? That would make things so much simpler. But you know, that line of thinking, it usually leads to uh, thinking and wishing and desiring that everyone was just like, uh, just like me. If everyone only just thought just like me, if, if my wife really just thought the way that I thought about this, if only my husband truly understood what I was feeling and what I meant. Maybe you've heard it said before, uh, the church would be a great place if it weren't for all the people. 
This would be a, a wonderful job to be a pastor, except for all the people. Because <laughs> we don't always think the same way. We don't always uh, understand one another. We're all fallen human beings. And so sometimes when the goal is unity, we work towards that by the wrong means, by the wrong way. One way of achieving that goal of unity is certainly through coercion, uh, through force. We've seen that in the church, have we not? We, we see how one man can assume too much control in the life of the church. There's no plurality of elders. And so it becomes a one-man show. And those situations don't end well, but at least for a time, it can be said that there was some unity there as everyone fall, uh, fell in line and in lockstep. But this isn't true unity. This is not the way that God has ordained this unity, unity to come about. It's not accomplished by God's means. And so that's the, the next thing we have to ask. We understand the goal is to be of one mind, but how do we achieve that goal? How are they able to be of one mind and of one accord? Not through force, not through coercion or any other uh, underhanded way, but having that goal now placed before them, Paul turns to the means of accomplishing that goal. It's the, the means. How do they do that? That's verses three and four that we read earlier. Look there with me again. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wouldn't it be nice if those verses were not in the Bible? Picture yourself in that small church, hearing this letter read aloud to you and maybe raising your hand and saying, are, are you sure that's, that's what Paul wrote? Are you sure? I just wanted to double check. You're sure this is the only way. And what if we just uh, added some more programs to our, our Sunday morning and evening and weekly uh, church docket? Maybe if we just gave more money, money, I will pay uh, more money. Just don't ask me to, to do this. No, but here we move from that nice sounding ideal of unity into the nitty gritty of daily life together. No, we don't actually uh, get to do whatever we desire, but we are called to let go of ourselves, to let go of our own interests, and to seek the good and the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ above ourselves. Paul uses the same word here for selfish ambition uh, to describe those who are preaching the gospel out of um, false uh, motives uh, earlier in the letter, back in chapter 1, uh, verse 17. And in that section, Paul says that it's, it's no concern to him. They're doing it out of false uh, ambitions, out of bad motives. But Christ is being pro proclaimed, and that's what he cares about above all. He doesn't care about his own reputation. He doesn't care about him getting the glory as long as Christ is being proclaimed. And so here he turns to the Philippians. And he gives them this question. What are your motives for doing what you're doing? 
because you can be doing good things in the church. You can be serving in many ways in hospitality and greeting and the worship team and leading the service and preaching. That doesn't matter because it can all be done from bad motives, from, from rivalry, from selfish ambition. And so this is the heat check moment for them and for us. Why? Why are you doing what you're doing? You can be doing the right things from the wrong motives. And Paul desires that they do the right things from the right motives. It's a very simple message in that way. Because this is the only way to accomplish the goal of joyful unity. This this word that Paul uses uh, really is a truly helpful picture for us. Uh, The word that our uh, the ESV that I'm reading from translates uh, as conceit uh, in verse 3. That word conceit, it's a, it's a compound word that Paul built from combining the two words empty and glory. At the end of the service, we, we will sing the doxology which is uh, the word of praise or a word of glory uh, to our God. And that's the glory that Paul, that word that Paul uses, that doxa, that uh, from doxology, that refers to that, that glory. The Christian is to sing the praises and the glory of God. But on the other hand, when we do not have the mindset that seeks to glorify God in all that we do, we become empty of that glory. We become hollow and uh, empty shells of of who we were uh, created to be. We were all created to glorify God. That's the chief end of man, as our catechism teaches us. Chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so we're taught here that when uh, we value ourselves above others, when we don't have our uh, values properly ordered, that we're falling short of what we were created to be by seeking our own gain, by emptying, by, uh, by seeking our own gain, we are, uh, in fact, emptying ourselves of the glory that we ought to be ascribing to God. We're failing to live our lives as becoming uh, Christians, as becoming followers of Christ. We're failing to live in light of our ultimate destiny. There is a day that's coming when Christ returns that we'll be made like him, that we'll be resurrected. Those of us that have passed away, those of us that will still be there, will also be caught up in the air that Paul teaches in First Thessalonians. We'll, we'll all be received and be brought into the presence of Christ, and we'll be made like him. We'll have glorified bodies as his body is now glorified. We were made for that kind of glory, and so when we don't live in that way now, we're failing to live up to our potential, to what we were created to be. We are to live that, like that now. And the way that looks like is through humility, through self-denial. Those are the means of accomplishing God's goal. So we've seen the goal. We've seen that we are to strive for unity of heart and of mind. And we've seen the means of accomplishing that goal, which is through humility and through self-denial. And now we've, we've gotten to this point, and maybe 
that just doesn't sound that great. <laughs> Does not sound worth it. Unity might be great, but at this cost, I don't, I don't know if I want to sign up for that. That doesn't sound that appealing. Why even bother doing any of this? Well, let's look back at the, at the beginning of our passage. At the reasons for doing all of this work in the first place. What are the reasons that Paul states why they are to pursue this goal? And the reasons he lays out, it's nothing other than the triune love of God. The love that God has within the triune relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that same love that is extended to us in covenant relationship with God. So look back at the logical connection of our passage. Paul makes an if-then statement, like we said. He says, if these things are true, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, and he's perfectly clear, these are not hypothetical ifs. These are, this is an if-then clause used for rhetorical effect, but these are sincerely 100% true This is a factual statement. Since all these things are true, since all of this is the case, the rest must follow. The goal must be uh, sought after. A life of humility and and self-denial must be lived because all of these things are true. So what are those reasons then? Well, simply put, this is, Uh, who God is. And this is what he has created each of us to be. This is is God's nature. The reason is God. And so let's look at this picture of God's nature that Paul paints for us here. He first, he starts off with the comfort or the encouragement of Christ. The person of Christ, this second person of the Trinity, the son of God who, who took on flesh, He's the one uh, who came and dwelt among us, uh, tabernacled among us. He took on flesh. He took on the form of a servant that he could live a life like ours. He could, he could feel uh, pain like we feel. He felt hunger. He felt, uh, he felt uh, abandonment by his friends. He felt loneliness. He, he, he knew all these things, and yet he came and he touched the lepers. He healed the sick. He, he comforted the weak. He lived and ate and had compassion on the hungry and on the lost and on the sinner. He is the one who is near the brokenhearted to comfort them and to encourage them. He's talked about elsewhere as the good shepherd of the sheep. And the sheep hear his voice. He calls out to them and he comforts them. He protects them. He's the shepherd of Psalm 23. And because of this encouragement of Christ, what Paul is saying, because there is such encouragement in Christ, everything that Christ has done, everything that he's accomplished in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, and how that impacts our own lives, because all that's true, therefore, we strive for unity. But not only that, 
And that would have been enough. But not only that, there's another reason. There is a love from God, the Father. Now, Paul does not mention here in this passage, he does not mention explicitly uh, God the Father, first person of the Trinity. But there's good reason to believe that he intends this uh, reading. Many scholars and, and pastors, they see the connection between this passage here and Paul's benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians, which is almost verbatim to our passage. Where Paul says, now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And likewise here, Paul's polling that Trinitarian language, attributing the love to God, to the Father, the loving and benevolent Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children, which is seen nowhere uh, clearer than in the gift of him sending his son, his beloved son, his only begotten son into the world, that he loved the world in such a way that he was willing to give his son to pay the ransom for our sins. See, that is the love of the father, that, that love that exists, that is so comforting. It's so comforting to know that regardless of whatever state we're in, 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 in this life, no matter the extent of the love that we have between our own earthly fathers, between our own uh, relationships here on earth, between family and friends, no matter what that is, good or bad, there's an abundance of love in our heavenly father. And even we don't have the eyes to see fully just how much he loves us, how much he cares for us, how he's a good benevolent father that that cherishes to uh, give good gifts to his children, to lavish his love upon us. And because of that reason, Paul says, we strive for unity. But not only that, not only the encouragement of Christ, not only the love of God, but there's another reason. There's also the partnership or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he told his disciples that he would be taken from them, but that it would actually be a good thing. Well, how can that be? What could be better than, than living and uh, working and uh, walking alongside of you, Jesus? You're going to face to face. Well, Paul, uh, Jesus says, because I'll be sending my own spirit to you, a comforter, an encourager, one who will be with you always. And through that spirit, I will be with you always, my very own spirit I'm sending to you. And so he did. And so it is for all of us who are in Christ. God's spirit has dwelt in all of us. And so not only does the spirit unite us to Christ in our effectual calling, not only does the spirit regenerate our hearts, not only does the spirit work faith in us, that faith, that's the instrument by which we are justified in the sight of God, made righteous in his sight. Not only does the Spirit do that work and sanctify us in all those things, but that same Spirit also unites us to one another. It creates a fellowship of believers. And a fellowship that's, that's so strong that Jess and I can come here this morning and we can feel a connection from the very uh, first Sunday that I was here uh, a few months ago. You can come expectant knowing that we're going to be among the family. And we see that. 
can feel it. We're all sheep of the same pasture. We all hear the same voice of our, our good shepherd. And that's not just the case when you drive 30 minutes out of, out of town, but it's all over the world. You can ask different missionaries and other people have worked all over. But they have that connection that you can, you can tell, you know, when you're in the presence of another believer, another son and daughter of God. We know one another because we, we share that bond, that covenant in the blood of Christ, and that same spirit dwells in all of us. And so because of those reasons, Paul says, we must strive for unity. And then Paul adds these two words to the end. He says, any affection, any sympathy. This affection is the same that he mentioned at the beginning of his letter, this, this affection of Christ uh, that Paul had for the, uh, the Philippians. Uh, that word, as you know, it's a, uh, it's a gut-wrenching uh, affection. It, that word literally refers to the inward parts, refers to the, to the intestines, to the inward uh, organs. It's that same uh, feeling, that emotional feeling that's so powerful that actually affects you physically. That's the kind of feeling that, that uh, Paul has for the Philippians and that we ought to have for one another because that's how Christ feels for you. That's how much God loves you. And so if there is any affection, if there's any sympathy at all in that way toward us, and there is, then the goal is not just some suggestion. It's not just some ideal that we talk about, but it's a necessity. It's something that we must strive toward. And so we must, we must strive toward that goal, the goal of joyful unity through humility and self-denial because the triune God's love and affection toward us compels us there. What a beautiful, uh, amazing uh, picture, not only of the, the inner Trinitarian uh, relationship and love that they have with one another, but also that triune God's relationship uh, with us. Truly, how, how good, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, when God's people dwell in unity. Now, there's one final point that we, we need to touch on briefly. We'll, we'll end with this, something that we've mentioned briefly earlier, but, but it deserves more attention. And that is this, we, we must not appeal for unity uh, blindly. Unless the unity has a solid foundation, no unity can be established. Uh, this is the missing piece that a lot of our conversations today about, about unity, about, uh, uh, about these, these appeals to unity uh, that they're missing. Uh, what, what foundation are the Philippians to build this this? Uh, shared mind this this unity upon if they are all if they are all to think alike then that poses the question to us of what exactly are they all to be thinking about uh, what is the content what's the doctrine what's the substance of this of this uh, thought this this uh, thing that they are all to be agreed upon the answer is in our next verse 
Uh, verse 5, they are to have the mind of Christ. And that will be uh, fleshed out more next week. We don't have time to dig in that, into that today. I won't steal any of Nick's thunder as he comes next week to preach on the beautiful mind of Christ and that Christ hymn. But we have to understand that's, that is what the foundation is, is absolute devotion to Jesus Christ and to following his example. And that's how we have unity. We must follow the supreme example of Christ who humbled himself, who took on flesh, who became a servant, who was obedient unto death. That is how we then can be unified as we humble ourselves, as Christ humbled himself and seek the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But apart from that, if we are not seeking after Christ, if we are not seeking to live as becomes followers of Christ, which we have all taken vows to do, which we will take vows to do here soon, then no unity can be had. We do not have unity with sin. We do not have unity with deceit and with false doctrine. We do not have unity with false teachers. But we contend for the truth. We stand firm in the scriptures in those moments. But in the midst of that contention, in the midst of uh, that division and, and that, that sorrow that comes along with it, we must never lose sight of the goal that is set before us. If there is any encouragement in this Jesus who is the Christ, if there is any love to be found in the Father who spared not his own Son, and if the Holy Spirit is where we find our fellowship and participation as sons and daughters of God by our spirit-wrought union with Christ. If all of that is true, then we will seek to have the same mind that Christ had. We will strive for that ideal and we'll not take our eyes off of it. We won't take our eyes off the mark, but we'll strive toward and we'll know that everything else will fall into place. Let's have that mind of Christ. Let's pray for that now. Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, you humbled yourself. You took on flesh. You did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But you are our supreme example of what it means to, to follow after you. You modeled it for us. You are our teacher. You're our rabbi. We are your disciples. We're your students. And I pray that we would, uh, this day and every day, we would strive to follow more and more in your footsteps, to live more and more as becomes your followers, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to live in humility, and to not account, uh, to not account ourselves as, uh, as more than others, but always to seek the good of your people to seek the good of your church, to seek the good of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. So I pray by your spirit, would you help us to do that now? Would you help us to do that uh, in every area of our lives as we look to serve you and to please you and to worship you in all that we do? And so be with us now the rest of this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.